Hello and welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. John 8 is a fantastic passage and I've really enjoyed speaking on it, so much so that I've extended this week as a second part of last week. John 8, 12 says, Whoever follows me will, walk, will never walk in darkness. This is Jesus speaking to the crowd. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And all of us want to know that light, don't we? We just don't want to be associated with darkness in life, all the despair, the fear, the difficulty, the hopelessness that that metaphor conjures up. We want to walk in light, to be forever uh, in the presence of God. So we need to know what it means to follow Jesus. And as we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, we pick up on the title of the week before last, which was Why We Love Jesus, because... These passages, these studies for me are so exciting because they make me feel this is the God I want to serve. This is the God I want to walk alongside. This is the God I love. And as Jesus dealt with the woman caught in adultery, and as we explore what it means to follow this Jesus, we say this is why we love Jesus. So John 8 and verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus here is using two central themes in John's gospel once again that he's used before and that he'll use again. The first is that of light. And in a moment, we'll explore uh, what light means. But it's a very, very strong statement for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world. It's an implicit or a, a kind of hint at being divine because there was a real understanding that God or the law of God was light. And then he also picks up on the theme of following. And again, this is something that Jesus talks a lot about, following him, following him. Now, we're used in our culture to following people on social media, which kind of means we take an interest in who they are. And we need to kind of lose that concept when we think about what Jesus means about following him. And we want to try and unpack that. We've done that in two ways. Uh, and uh, this is the second part today. Because once we've unpacked what it means to follow Jesus, we can then see how that gives us light in life. So last week, we looked at what it means to be following Jesus in terms of following his instructions. And we looked at seven instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples who were following him. And we talked about that for us to follow Jesus means to keep those seven things, to try our best to obey them, and that that will set us free from fear, from despair, and bring us into the light of peace and hope. Today, we're going to look at the second thing that Jesus really was talking about when he says, follow me, which was follow his example, copy his behavior. And again, there are lots of different ideas that you could choose for that, but I've, I've gone with seven. Uh, I like seven. It's a kind of whole biblical number. Let's remind ourselves about this metaphor of light and darkness. Throughout the Bible, darkness is associated with the absence of God. And because it's the place where God isn't, metaphorically, symbolically speaking, it's a place of evil, a presence of evil. So when people talk about being in darkness, it's a sense of being uh, removed from or not sensing or knowing God, but of being in the presence of evil. Therefore, there is fear. There is the danger of harm. 
It is also associated with confusion. And we understand this today. If we were out in the dark, uh, walking around a place, we, we might be afraid of who we can't see and what's going on. We know that uh, certain criminal elements are happier at dark, out in, in nighttime. But we also may sense that confusion. We can't see what to do. The light uh, is out, perhaps, and there's a noise in, in the in in our house and we can't see where we're going, we're confused. We don't know the way forward is part of this feeling of darkness. And combining all these ideas is the idea of despair. And people living in darkness was a way of understanding and feeling that sense of lostness, of, of having no hope. Whereas the light is the presence of God and the presence of God casts out evil and brings deliverance. The presence of God casts out fear and brings peace. The presence of God casts out confusion and brings guidance. And the presence of God drives out despair and brings hope. So, how do we find this light and walk in it, live in it, let it be part of our everyday experience? Seven examples to copy. The first example, the first thing that Jesus does, and he talks about it being central to all that he is and all that he does. And he uses it as a way of explaining to those who are critical of him what he's about. It is to seek the lost. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man, that's the way he spoke of himself. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And we'll see how Jesus picks up on a prophecy in Ezekiel 34 where God says, I will come and seek the lost as the good shepherd. And Jesus identifies himself with this. So Jesus' agenda was to come and to look for those who were lost. So what do we mean by being lost well, we might look at it as three kind of things that are interconnected. Those who are lost are in the wrong place, not where God intended them to be. I don't mean geographically, but perhaps emotionally or in terms of choices. They're in the wrong place. They're living a lifestyle that God didn't intend or want for them. They're perhaps hurting or damaging others. Perhaps they are... Uh, being hurt or damaged. So it's being lost is having taken the wrong paths, perhaps deliberately, perhaps uh, without intending to. When we're lost, uh, we may have ignored the map or we may just have misread the map. But whatever it is, we're in the wrong place. And the third aspect of it is that those who are lost can't see the way forward. And that's similar to this feeling of darkness. It's that we, we don't know where we are, so we don't know how to get back to where we need to be. We're lost. We can't see the way forward. And Jesus says he has come to seek and to save the lost. They are important to him. So what is seeking? Well, it means to be intentional and proactive, to be looking for, to be scanning the horizon. Who is lost? In our workplace, in our, amongst our community, amongst our friends, who do we feel and sense is feeling that they can't see a way forward? Or perhaps is feeling or aware that they're in the wrong place, that their choices have led them into being where God didn't intend or want them to be. And Jesus looks for those people. 
Perhaps he looks beneath what people say about themselves and how they present themselves in speech or social media to the reality, is this person lost? And for us to seek them means to pray for them, to proactively bring to God, to intercede on behalf of those who we sense are lost, who are making poor choices, who can't see the way forward, who are not where God wanted them to be. But then also to seek is to draw alongside, to build friendship and relationship, not to um, criticize or push away or condemn or rebuke, but to gather alongside. Jesus was criticized for being the friend of sinners. And that's one of the reasons why he uses this expression, that he actually came to do that. He came to seek and to save the lost. He hasn't come for the people who are perfect. So it's about in our own lives, drawing alongside those who we perhaps feel are in the wrong place. That may be criticized by others. But once we're in that place, we demonstrate what it means to walk with Jesus. We demonstrate the wisdom of God. Not necessarily that we rebuke people, but we just live a different lifestyle. We demonstrate hope. For those who are feeling there is no future and no way forward, we just present hope. And we demonstrate compassion and grace. We demonstrate how Jesus has just behaved with that woman caught in adultery, the woman who was lost. And what we discover is that when our lives are intentionally scanning and looking for people who we would otherwise overlook, who in some way are lost, we open the door to the presence of God in our lives. Because we partner with, we join in with what God is doing. Instead of asking God to bless our plans, we're involved in his plans, which are already blessed. And as we find that the presence of God comes among us because we are seeking to draw alongside the lost, so we discover that we're walking in the light of deliverance, of peace, of guidance, of hope. So our question for reflection at this point is, who do we know that is lost? What makes us feel they are lost? Do they feel lost? Maybe you want to pause the tape or the podcast now and pray for them. Example to copy number two is to forgive the enemy. We know that Jesus does this on the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And we know that he, he tells his disciples to forgive. But it's really, really difficult. And I found it helpful to unpack forgiveness recently into three different forms of forgiveness. There are three different situations in which we're required to think about forgiveness. And the first is when we uh, forgive someone who we otherwise would trust and therefore God is asking us to be reconciled. In other words, that we restore the relationship. Now, it's important to understand that this is different to the next two examples that I'm going to give you. But sometimes we have to forgive someone who is, in, is a good person, their intentions are right, they are trustworthy, and we need to just go back to a good relationship and lay aside maybe our judgments or their mistakes and just seek to be restored. And perhaps accepting that they won't do that again or they are honest in their intention to change. Now, being reconciled with someone is dependent on their understanding that they've done wrong, 
and on our ability to trust them that they are good people. That is not always the situation. But sometimes we reject being reconciled with somebody that we, we ought to be reconciled with, that we ought to put it right. But the second area of forgiveness is uh, not those who we trust, but those who are flawed, who are untrustworthy for different reasons, but they are apologetic. So the second area of forgiveness is forgiving someone who is sorry, they wish they hadn't done it, but we are not able to say we're sure that they're not going to do it again. So what does forgiveness look like in that situation? It means to accept the apology. And it means to release them from guilt and to say, I, I accept that, I receive that, and I let go of my anger and I don't want you to feel uh, blame or guilt anymore. And it may mean praying for them and seeking their good, but it won't necessarily mean reconciliation. It won't necessarily mean going back to how it used to be because perhaps we recognise that the temptation for them to continue or to do that again is too great. Perhaps someone has flown off the handle and been violent. And we may say, yes, we forgive you for that, we release you from that, but actually there are safeguards that need to be in place that I can't allow myself to be hurt again with you. And sometimes that happens when relationship breaks down. And we need to be able to forgive them because they're, they're asking for an apology, but we say, I can forgive you, but I can't be reconciled. I can't put it back as if it hasn't happened because it has. And to protect me or protect my children or protect those who I care for or protect others in my life, I can't go back to how it was. And the third and even harder area of forgiveness is when the person is unapologetic, they're unrepentant, they don't care or know what they've done. But you know, God asks us to let go of the anger because it's damaging us and harming our uh, walk with him and with other people. And so sometimes God asks us to let go of anger that we hold. In fact, more than sometimes, I think every time. So that's a process and it's difficult and we will need to ask for God's help in it. And just to let go of the anger. We can't be reconciled, we can't even tell them that we forgive them because they don't see they've done anything wrong. But we take the anger that we feel, the bitterness, the desire to hurt them, the thoughts that we have about them, we take it and we give it to God and we say, Lord, I let go. There but by the grace of God go I. And when we forgive our enemy, in whatever shape or form they are, we open the door to God's presence. And we discover that he is with us. And one of the principal reasons that he is with us, and we talked about this in our last study, is that when we uh, hold on to anger and bitterness, we project that God would do the same to us. When we feel that we can't forgive somebody else, we tend to assume that God doesn't forgive us. Whereas when we embrace forgiving other people, we recognize and understand his forgiveness of us. And the cross becomes more real and understandable. And so long as we hold on to stuff against other people, we don't fully understand how forgiven we are. So open the door to the presence of God. 
brings deliverance, brings light, brings peace, brings guidance, brings hope. So our question is this, what anger do we need God's help to let go of? Let's bring it to God and ask for his help. The third example to copy is that of being good news for the poor. Jesus goes into the synagogue, he picks up Isaiah, he quotes from the prophecy of Isaiah, and he says, I am fulfilling it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. How can we be good news to the poor? Well, we need to understand their needs. We need to not judge their situation nor perpetuate their problems. And like the lost, it's about being involved. It's, not a, uh, it's just about being alongside. It's about seeing those who are poor rather than blaming them and walking away and condemning them, but being good news to them by valuing them, by considering them precious in the sight of God and demonstrating it. It's about listening to their needs and their requests and their situation. And it's about supporting them where we can. We seek to do that as a church. We seek to encourage each other to do that as a community. And I love the idea that Jesus is good news to the poor. And I want to be joined in with that mission to be good news for the poor. Sometimes that means speaking up for them. Sometimes it means prioritising. We did that with our church in prioritising, making sure the food bank stayed open throughout the pandemic. Whatever it means that when we're alongside and seeking to be good news to the poor, paying our taxes, doing what we can to support in charitable ways, we open the door to the presence of God, which, as we've already learned, brings deliverance, peace, guidance and hope. So where in our life are we being good news to the poor? With our wallet, with our votes, with our profession, with our, in our jobs, in our community. Where are we engaged with the poor? And they would say, their involvement, your involvement in my life is good. Example uh, number four to copy is strengthening the weak. And we're in the same ballpark here. And this is where we do pick up on this incredible prophecy in Ezekiel 34, where God says to the leaders, I will search for the lost myself. I will bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. And this is what Jesus is referring to later. We'll come to in John 10 when he says, I am the good shepherd. And they're similar to the, the poor and, and the lost. It's about recognizing who is vulnerable, who is weaker uh, around and, uh, and near us. And how can we support them? How can we bring them the grace of God? How can we be involved in their lives? How can we bring encouragement? How can we uh, push, keep them going and, and help them day by day to go further? Cheering them on praising them, encouraging, giving practical care and being persistent in prayer for them. And as we're involved with the lost, the poor, the weak, as we're doing what Jesus did and we're copying his example, we discover that God is with us and his light is among us. And we know that that opens the door to his peace, his guidance and his hope in our life. So we ask ourselves, how might we strengthen those around us? And the fifth 
example to copy is to heal the broken. Again, it picks up um, on this passage in Ezekiel. I will bind up the injured that the good shepherd is going to do. We know that Jesus healed physically. And so again, there is an invitation to us to follow Jesus, to be involved physically, praying for healing, to always pray. We lose nothing in praying for someone to be healed. Just always pray for people to be healed and to partner with all the gifts that God has given, the medical services and science, and to encourage people. And many of us will be called by God to work in those areas. We're to heal the broken. We're also to do that spiritually and to recognize that healing is not just the body, but it's often the very soul and heart of a person. And how do we bring spiritual healing to people? Well, we need to explain and facilitate their salvation. To know what it is to follow Jesus and to explain to them what it involves, to invite them to different things in church life. Not to be afraid to say, I've discovered something that I think can heal your spiritual state. And the third area is to heal emotionally. And to simply, as we've talked about already in this session, to love, to draw alongside, to encourage. And as we're involved in this ministry of taking and seeing broken lives and healing through prayer and love and encouragement and explanation, we open the door to the presence of God. And we begin to walk in his light. See, what Jesus is saying is that you will remain in darkness if you have your own agenda, your own priorities, your own friendship circles and your own way of living. And you will live in fear and despair. But if you choose my way of living, which is to look for those who are in need and to draw alongside them, life will be different. So our question is, who might we pray for healing for? Example number six to copy is to release the trapped. And we're in the same field once again. The prophecy from Isaiah that Jesus quotes, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. Who do we know that are blinded, that cannot see a different way of looking at life and are trapped by it? Who do we know that are enslaved by habits or values or Um, beliefs who do we know that are caught in addictions and are trapped in one way or another and Jesus calls us again to be alongside again to be involved and again to be praying and to really pray for people's deliverance and release to know people well enough to say can I pray for you and to pray for people in our own time. And as we build relationship and pray, we model a freedom. We teach people how to live without the things that enslave them. Maybe you know people who are enslaved in one way or another to perhaps alcohol, perhaps social media, uh, perhaps their self-esteem, all kinds of different ways in which people feel enslaved. And just by living a different way, close enough for them to see because we've built relationship, we can help them be released. And we encourage them. And we say, God can set you free from this. So who might we pray 
release for? Who do we know that's trapped? Our last example to copy is the final thing that he says to the disciples, their final instruction and something that he's modelled for them throughout their time is to teach the disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. And what we see is that for three years, Jesus called people to live closely with him and to watch what he was doing. So our last example to copy in order to find light in life is to live authentically and allow people to see how we live with integrity. To live in such a way that people say, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because we are good news to the poor, because we do seek the lost, because we do strengthen the weak, because we do bind up the injured, because we do forgive our enemies. Because we are modelling it, people say, that's what a disciple is and I want to be that. And as we model authentically and explain why we live our lives, we open the door to Jesus. And as Jesus walks with us, as we fulfil his mission and his command and we work for his kingdom, so we discover that we walk in the light and we know deliverance, peace, guidance and hope. So our last question is who is copying us? Who is watching how we live? And are they being inspired to be a disciple or are we putting them off? Prayer that we've used in our live streams recently. I want to invite you to say with me. Lord, we thank you for the example and teaching of Jesus. Help us to be disciples who seek the lost, who love, forgive, strengthen, heal and release our neighbours and our enemies. We choose to follow you again. As we close, take these questions and with a bit of paper perhaps reflect on them for a little while. Who do we know that is lost? What makes us feel that they are lost and are they themselves feeling lost? What anger do we need God's help to let go of? Where are we good news for the poor? How might we strengthen those around us? Who might we pray for healing for? Who might we pray for release for? And who is copying us? Amen.